From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. A special episode of our show today recorded at the Avalon Theater in downtown Grand Junction with best-selling Colorado author Peter Heller. His latest novel is a wilderness thriller inspired by a creepy interaction he had years ago with a man who said his wife had vanished. I walked away from that conversation and I knew that he was lying. Heller takes readers to one of the most remote spots in North America in his new novel, The River. Then, the winner of our Solo on the Slope music contest, he's from Placerville, Colorado. Placerville is my and many other people's happy place because we love Telluride in the mountains, but every once in a while it gets a little too crazy and you need some separation. So you go to Placerville where you have a post office and you have a mercantile. All of my time I wouldn't say it's been wasted. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Fire and ice are forces that can benefit us or kill us. Tension, the late poet Robert Frost captured beautifully. Here he is reading that short poem. Some say the world will end in fire. Some say in ice. From what I've tasted of desire, I hold with those who favor fire. But if it had to perish twice, I think I know enough of hate to say that for destruction, ice is also great and would suffice. Frost is one of many brilliant writers honored in a new book called The River. Edgar Allan Poe's in there too, and Louis L'Amour. But The River is not some academic anthology. It's a thriller, a mystery set in the wilderness where fire and ice loom large. It's the latest from novelist, adventurer, and lover of literature, Peter Heller, who splits his time between Denver and Peonia. Let's welcome him to the stage here at the Avalon Theater in downtown Grand Junction. Peter, thanks for joining us. Uh, So great to be with you again. Before we dive into the plot of this wilderness thriller, I do want to focus on how much you celebrate other artists in your work. Uh, It was especially true of your novel, The Painter. But this one, too, is brimming with nods to art and literature. And I'm curious how much forethought you give that when you're writing a novel. None. (laughs) Um, I I always start with a... I I came up as a poet. And I read a ton of poetry as a kid and a young man. And um, I was so enthralled with the music of the language that that's all I really wanted to do. And I found out that you can't make a living being a poet. They should have told us that at the English department. (laughs) It's kind of mean of them. They should have told us. Um, So I came out of school and I had to make a living. And I, I ended up writing prose. But I'm really more interested in the music. And so I start all my novels with the first line. And it's just the music of the language. And I follow that into the story. And so I have zero forethought about anything. And then moments occur to you in plots, but then art occurs to you to weave in. A little little sprinkling of Edgar Allan Poe somewhere. Yeah, I mean, when you write like that, you keep bumping into all the stuff that you love, (laughs) which is awesome. And, uh, you know, you carry around those libraries with you, you know. I mean, there are lines that I remember from from Yeats, for instance, that, you know, when I first read when I was 11. And you carry those around with you. And, of course, when you're writing a novel that's sort of a basket for everything in the universe, things you know and things you don't know that you know and things you don't know, and you, you end up weaving that stuff in just, uh, just as a, an expression of love. 
Okay, The River is the story of two college friends who have the summer off and decide to canoe a remote river together. Jack grew up on a ranch near Granby, Colorado, and Wynne was raised in maple syrup country, rural Vermont. Describe the kind of remote country that they set out to canoe. So uh, this is a river that begins in northern Ontario. It starts on the Canadian Shield, which is big woods, big black timber. Uh, it starts in a string of lakes, and they, they plan to paddle these five lakes northward, and the more, most northerly lake uh, flows into a river that then runs 250 miles up into Hudson Bay. So it's some of the re most remote country on Earth, and it is home of um, wolves and, and bear and moose, and yeah, it's just wild, wild country. And this is country you know? Yeah, I did. I, the river that it's based on, I actually did on the third date with, with this woman. <laughs> so I, I, was, I was dating this gal, Kim, and she... Um, third date, she came over to my house in Sloan's Lake in Denver, and um, she wanted to drop off her gym bag uh, before we went out to dinner, and I, and I picked it up, and it was really heavy, and I said, what, what's in there? And she said, weaponry. And uh, she opened it up, and inside were short swords and throwing stars and uh, nunchucks, and I was like, wow, I'm going to be on my very best behavior. <laughs> uh, so we had dinner, and I had this assignment to go canoe this river from a magazine. Uh, and I was really excited about it. And I just thought, wow, she's really tough. She said she'd never been in a canoe. But I thought, wow, she's really tough. She could probably kill a bear with her bare hands. <laughs> so I asked her to come with me on this trip. And um, we were packing up the canoes, and we had these little plastic blue barrels that were waterproof for our personal gear. And she said, as we were packing, she said, oh, could I bring my eyebrow tweezers? <laughs> and I was so shocked. I mean, I was like, no one had ever asked me that before. Uh, and it was like this culture shock. And I, and I should have been more gracious. You know, I mean, how much do they weigh, right? Like a gram. And I, but I said, no. <laughs> and she got me back because as we paddled the river, we were running whitewater and stuff. She, I discovered that she loves fossils. And she started loading up the canoe with rocks. And we were getting lower and lower in the water. We were losing our freeboard, which is not a good thing when you hit waves. And one morning, we were camping up. And on the beach next to the canoe was a 12-pound rock with this tiny little clamshell in the corner. And I picked it up, and I said, um, Kim, maybe? And she goes, looks at me with snake eyes and said, don't minimize me. And then I knew that she was someone to run the river with because she was someone to reckon with, and um, that's probably a good thing. And now we're married. <laughs> I will never, ever deny her any implement of any kind <laughs> ever again. Let's have you read a passage from the book. They left the flight out from Wapak open-ended. They'd call when they got to the village, and they'd planned a leisurely pace with short days whenever they wanted, with layovers in camp to hike, to hunt if they felt like it, to forage for berries, to rest and smoke their pipes and take their ease like Huck Finn or Stubb, 
The pipes were anachronistic and they loved them. To recline in camp and puff a vanilla tobacco mix made them feel like old explorers. They hungered to immerse themselves in the country without the hurry of a jammed itinerary. They'd even left their watches, trusting their sense of time to the sun and stars when they could see them and to their body's rhythms when they couldn't. This is an area with no cell service, and your main characters decide not to bring a satellite phone with them. So in terms of modern communications, they're really cut off. And lack of communication with the outside world is such an important dynamic in so many classic stories. I think of an affair to remember. Um, If there had been cell service atop the Empire State Building in 1957, that would have turned out very differently. Is it getting harder for novelists to believably isolate characters like you do? Not if you write about the wilderness. Piece of cake. I mean, you can bring satellite phones. And I I did a story that became a book in um, the Sangpo Gorge in, in eastern Tibet, one of the most remote places on earth, and down deep, 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 15,000 foot deep gorge. And um, I remember calling Kim one night uh, on a satellite phone, and I I remember the feeling of oddness making that call uh, in a bamboo forest with tiger tracks and four species of leopard and 200 species of rhododendron and 25,000-foot Himalayan peaks right overhead. And I remember, you know, making that call and thinking, um, glad that I could talk with her, but also feeling a little... um, sad that, you know, uh, I think what Clarence Darrow called in, in the Snopes trial, the charm of distance, you know, with the, the telephone back then. I think it's too bad in a way that we can't completely cut off. And so I respect these guys, you know, that they leave the satellite phone because they really want to be present where they are. This book, The River, Peter Heller, becomes a thriller for several reasons, not just the risk of dying in dangerous rapids or from exposure to the elements, or the mega fire raging in the distance. We'll get to that. Uh, But these two young college friends, Wynn and Jack, run into what they suspect is foul play. And I understand that the seed for this plot line was planted decades ago when you met like a real creep. (laughs) Yeah, interesting. Uh, So I was 17 and I was in love for the first time and I was going to a little boarding school in Vermont and my girlfriend was, Uh, a New Hampshire girl, so right across the river. She had three older sisters and a single mom, and they were all attractive. And on the weekends, all the suitors would come out of the hills, like a a fairy tale, (laughs) to this little cedar-shingled house. And friends, too, and, you know, um, they were all students and musicians. Everybody was broke. People would drive, you know, 20-year-old sobs up from Boston with duct tape over the convertible top. and, And everybody was sort of guilelessly unaware that this was like probably the best years of their lives, <laughs> which is sort of charming. Uh, anyway, so we, they'd have these big dinners on Saturday night, um, spaghetti dinners with cheap beer, and you know, I just thought this was the best thing. And one night, it was October, I remember, uh, it was a big party, and there was this guy leaning against the wall, and he, and he looked really sad, and he was, he was handsome and charismatic, and he was one of those sad, charismatic guys. And... Uh, <laughs> And everybody was treating him sort of gingerly, you know, I noticed that. And then someone said, hey, Pete, you know, he makes his living in a canoe. 
he's a geochemist and he, he does these studies and he takes these long expeditions. He studies watersheds. So um, I beelined over there and clinked my beer bottle. I was 17, you know, I, I thought that's what you're supposed to do. And, and I said, um, hey, what's up? You, you look a little rough. And he said, I lost my wife two months ago. And I was taken aback and I said, well, what happened? He said, well, we were on a canoe trip doing a study way up in Labrador and we were camped. We'd been out a couple of weeks and she went over the berm in the morning to relieve herself and I, I never saw her again. And I was, I said, well, was it a bear attack? Was there bear sign? He said, no. Well, did you look for her? Oh yeah, of course. I mean, I searched for like three days. And I walked away from that conversation and I knew that he was lying. Uh, my antenna were just humming and even at 17, I, I, I was dead sure that he was lying and I thought, you know, that son of a bitch killed his wife. And I must have been thinking about it for 40 years because, you know, I said I just start with the first line. I, I end up bumping in, you know, in the first couple of pages, I bump into whatever I'm, really concerns me and I, that I'm thinking about and that's what I bumped into in the river. You write just brilliantly about wildfire. There's a giant fire raging in the distance. It's adding to the tension in this novel, The River. Let me just quote how you describe it. The fire in its fury could speak tongues, could speak the language of every enemy, and sing too. Over the rush, very faint, was a high-pitched thrum, a humming of air that rose and fell almost in melody. You had a close encounter with a wildfire, I think in 94. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right, right up the valley. Um, I was living in Paonia, and I was working on a, a long narrative poem. I was in my house, and the last line I wrote was, it was about a waterfall, and it was something like, the lash of braided grief, I bring you fire. And I stepped outside to get a drink out of the hydrant, and I looked down the valley towards Hotchkiss, and I saw a plume of smoke coming off the slope, and it was the same weekend as the Storm King fire, and same conditions, you know, really hot and dry. And I thought, you know, that looks a lot like my friend Chuck's house, and I, I threw a shovel and a chainsaw into my truck, and I drove down there as fast as I could, and I got up to the canal at the base of the hill, and it's an irrigation canal, and there were all the emergency vehicles there, and they said, well, you can't drive up there. And I said, well, that's my friend's house. So I just grabbed the shovel and I ran up the road and there were 10 people uh, running around in the pinion juniper um, taking art and, and laptops and cats, Claudette, C-L-A-W-D, Claudette, put it in the truck. Uh, and um, there was one fire engine there. The, the volunteer fire department had a fire engine. And, and you could see now a wall of smoke beyond the trees and a gust came through, and I'll never forget, it just turned into a wall of flame, and you could hear the trees exploding, and the fire guys said, we're, we're out of here, and they cut their hoses, and they got in the truck, and we all jumped into vehicles and started driving down this very rugged dirt track, and I had Claudette, and she was like running laps <laughs> in the cabin of this truck, and we were going through sparks, and then smoke, and then flames, and this line of cars got to the bottom of the canal, we turned back, and I timed it on my watch. 90 seconds later, the, the fire took the whole hill. Yeah. And so we were like a minute and a half from getting cooked, and it, I, it made a deep impression on me, and I think you know, that's another thing that I must have been thinking about, because I bumped into it. The Storm King fire in 94 killed 
14 wildland yeah, 14 firefighters, firefighters yeah. hotshot firefighters. And Jim Mason, who was the, he was the fire chief in Glenwood Springs that weekend, and he, um, I called him and I asked him a lot about you know, the science of fire, and he was a huge help. Before you were a successful novelist, uh, you did journalism, and, and still do, magazine pieces, nonfiction books about surfing and kayaking and people who defend whales. Have you fully embraced the label novelist? Oh, yeah, man. <laughs> All I do now is drink coffee and eat Advil. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I just, all I do now is write, it seems like. <laughs> it's awesome. Once you start making stuff up, you know, it's pretty tough to go back. <laughs> Your character, Jack, one of these two college kids on this adventure, Jack grew up on a ranch in Colorado, lost his mother when he was little. She was killed in a horseback riding accident. And if you'll allow me to engage in just a little dime store psychology, you lost your mother relatively recently. She was the inspiration for your novel, Celine. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't help but think as I read this book that maybe you're still grappling with her loss. Oh yeah, no, I think that's a wonderful insight. And I thought about that too, you know, after I finished The River. She died four years ago and I, you know, I still get gusts of grief and I miss her so badly and I still pick up the phone to tell her something great and stop myself. Who knew, you know, it's interesting. I, I mean, I was, we were very close, but I always consider myself, you know, this rugged adventurer, but really I'm just, I'm just a mama's boy. Hmm. <laughs> Peter Heller, your laugh is like famous at P Colorado Public Radio. <laughs> we have meetings about your laugh, just so you know. When you say that you pick up the phone to call her, She's still in your phone, like on a, a yeah. quick dial kind of yeah. thing? Yeah, we called her Mambo, and so there she is. I should probably get it off. I mean, I don't know. Why? Oh, I don't think so. Why I mean, would you do that? No, I wouldn't. <laughs> I used to call her about it, you know, any great thing. You know, she was so proud of the writing. You know, she was one of those moms where I'd say, Mom, you know, I just got a cover story for Outside, you know, and I'm going to Tibet. And she'd say, well but how are the, how's the poetry? That's the kind of mom that you want. Oh. That passage I read about fire, I think it demonstrates how as a writer you engage the senses. In that case, there was a lot of sound, uh, a lot of sight. How important is it to engage the five senses when you write? And, and are you thoughtful about that, yeah, conscious yeah, about yeah, that? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, there's a few things I actually do think about when I write, and um, one of them is, is using as many senses as possible. When I'm teaching, especially, I don't, I don't teach much, but when I, when I do talk to, you know, writers that are coming up, I always say, okay, look, you know, you're landing your little plane at Polson Airport in Montana, and you can get out of the plane and you can say, you know, it's hot and windy, or you can say that the smell of sun-warm sage, you know, hit you, and that the little metal coke sign was clanging against the pole. And, you know, how much more visceral is that, and how much more does that put you in a place when you actually use the senses? And I learned that early on, especially in writing magazine articles, you have to take the, take the reader, and you have to immerse them and transport them right away if you're going to keep them reading the story. People, readers trust the senses much more than the, their head. How do you balance that with not becoming 
self-indulgent as a writer. Like I, I think about Proust and how exhausted I was by his descriptions of things. <laughs> like he, if, he was too, he drank 60 espressos in bed a day. Wow. Yeah. I remember, I think he dedicates like 10 pages to Madeline's little biscuits. And I just thought, I, you know, give me a paragraph about this biscuit. Do you find yourself reeling yourself in so that you're not too flowery? Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> flowery. I got to tell you a story about the French. I mean, you brought up Proust, so uh, I was just did a book tour in France, and they had to take your picture. So the photographer came out, and there was a tree. So I, I had my jacket on. I leaned against the tree, and I smiled like anybody from Colorado would do. And he goes, oh, Peter, no. Uh, please, listen, you, you must go like this. And, and what I'm doing is I'm making a motion where I'm grabbing my forehead and my face with all ten fingers and scrunching up in pain. You must show that you suffer. <laughs> and I was like, but Jean-Pierre, I'm really having a good time. <laughs> You're not miserable enough to be a novelist, is there? <laughs> exactly. Not in France, apparently. <laughs> Today, a special episode of the show recorded in Grand Junction at the Avalon Theater on Main Street. My guest is best-selling Colorado novelist Peter Heller. His latest is a thriller set in the wilderness. And it's not just dripping with suspense. It is soaked through with references to art, literature, and music. A song referenced several times in your new novel, The River, is an old Western tune called Little Joe the Wrangler. And I understand that it holds a lot of meaning for you. And we asked Cousin Curtis of Placerville, Colorado, winner of our Solo on the Slope music contest, to perform an excerpt. I want to listen to this with you and then have you talk a little bit more about what it means to you. Wow. Little Joel Wrangler will wrangle his days with the roundup, they are over. It was a year ago last April when he rode into our camp. Just a little Texas straight all along. He said if we would give him work, he'd do the best he could. Though he didn't know straight up about a cow. So the boss cut him out of mountain kind and put him on Sort of like this little kid somehow Driven to Red River, the weather being fine We camped down on the south side in a bed When the northern commenced to blow in and we doubled up our guard It took all hands to hold the cab Cattle they stampeded like a hailstorm on the flat With a little Joe the Wrangler in the lead He was riding old Blue Rocket with a slicker over his head Trying to check the leaders and the speed Next morning just at daybreak we found where Rocket fell Down in a washout twenty feet below Neither this horse, to a pulp, his spur had rung its knell. 
was our little Texas straight poor Wrangler Joe. Little Joe the Wrangler will wrangle nevermore. His days with the Roundup they are old. Here go last April when he rode into our camp Just a little Texas straight and all along Cousin Curtis will join us a little later in the program, but Peter, tell us what that song means to you. Whoa, that's a song that my dad sang to us kids uh, when we were from the time we were you know born <laughs> to when we went off to school dad was a real western buff and this is you know I'm, I'm talking growing up in new york city and he would pull out his guitar and sing that song and sing barbara allen and wabash cannonball and he's 91 now and he's in santa fe and he's having kind of a rough time he's still all here but his I can't wait to call him, and you know, his number is in my phone, and he'll actually pick it up and tell him that you guys did that tonight. It's really beautiful. I, I just love that song. Do you think it was those songs that helped you fall in love with the West when you were back East? Oh, yeah, for sure, and Dad's stories. I mean, he worked on a ranch in Durango, Mexico when he was in college, did it for a few years, you know, rounded up cows on horseback and he tells says that there were still bands of you know apaches still in the hills and uh when he was a you know young guy uh so we grew up steeped in the west and you know that's why i kind of read all those louis lamore books i mean i was sitting around a wood stove in vermont reading every louis lamore book written <laughs> imagining sandstone canyons and sagebrush and riding through the aspen and now you do <laughs> yep yep Peter Heller, thank you for being with us. Thanks so much for having me. Peter Heller on stage with us at the Avalon Theater in Grand Junction. Heller's new novel is The River. He splits his time between Denver and Paonia. Now, you just got a taste of Cousin Curtis coming up the main course. Curtis tells us how his career as a teacher prepared him for the sometimes unforgiving world of music. This is a special Western Slope edition of Colorado Matters from CPR News. Join me, Anne-Marie Awad, to sift through life after marijuana legalization with a new Colorado public radio podcast called On Something. America's public enemy number one is drug abuse. On our very first episode, you get the long story short on how weed became legal and illegal and all points in between. Pot was going to destroy the country. Ten years later, it's compassionate to let people use it. Subscribe to On Something on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The Western Slope is brimming with musical talent, but doesn't always get its due which is why we ran a contest, a search, for a solo artist west of Glenwood Canyon. Dozens of artists entered for a chance to perform here at the Avalon Theater in Grand Junction. Often they recorded themselves in their living rooms or as they played gigs at local bars. And we had a blast reviewing the submissions. She 
wildland farming, waiting on the rain. In the wild high desert, in the cool green mountains, I never feel alone. Ah, the journey is my In the end, we chose Cousin Curtis of Placerville, Colorado, as our solo on the slope winner. His given name is Curtis O'Rourke Stedman, but that's probably the only time I'm going to say that. Let's welcome Cousin Curtis to our stage. Hello. Hi. Your performance really won us over with your energy and heart, and it didn't hurt that during your video submission, your dog walked into the frame? All right, here we go. The dog was a plant. No, no. And I had run through the song five times before I actually hit record on the camera. And Doug, the dog, uh, slept the entire time. And then finally I said in the opening line to whatever I'd said in the video. And he's like, oh, who are you talking to? <laughs> Is it me? I was like, no, Doug, go. And he's like, <laughs> Did yeah. you say your dog's name was Doug? Doug, yeah, Doug the dog. I, yeah. okay. <laughs> yep. I love animals, pets with people names. That's yeah. wonderful. Yeah. And you just have to remember to add the U, I guess. Uh, let's, let's get straight to some music. What are you going to start with, Cousin Curtis? I'm going to start with a brand new song. Uh, it's called This Little Change. This is the title track from your latest album. Yes, it is. Take it away. All right. Season's gonna change and so must I A new part of the year And a part of me has died And I don't mind This little change is gonna come Wait till you see me Like a summer setting sun Never felt so free in my life Where I go from here The choice is mine And you can't take that away This little change is gonna come Lock me up and I'll get away Like a summer setting sun For all of my time here I wouldn't say it's been wasted But even though I may have been You should have seen the dreams I was chasing Everybody tells me I'm meant for greatness 
Hey, and I want to believe it. Most times it's hard to see it. This little change is going to come. Can I offer my interpretation of that song and see if I'm anywhere near? Yeah, let's do this. Is this about a, a man or a person who thinks that he or she should be farther along in life? Yeah. Yeah. I'd say that's, that's part of it. Would you like to know a little background? Yeah. It's really about figuring out where you are currently, everything that's happened up to this point, and whether you're ready to continue chasing the dream that you set out to chase. Uh, are, you, are you mentally, are you physically, and this is definitely introspective, am I mentally, physically prepared to go through more of what I've already been through in order to get to where I see myself? Do you think you reach a certain age where the dream becomes less realistic, less possible? Mm -hmm. Like, as I'm aging, I'm realizing, you know, the things I envisioned for myself as a kid, I'm running out of time. <laughs> I definitely think that's something that plays into it. I would say dreams, as lofty as you want to make them, you have to have these 
cornerstones of achievement that are realistic. And that way the dream is fed and you can watch it grow in front of your eyes instead of like me picking up a guitar day one and saying, Grammys, baby, here we go. But now it's kind of like, okay, well, I've been doing this for a little while. Let's keep chasing this dream, see what happens. And I'm ever the optimist, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep chasing the dream. I need to set mini goals. Yeah, yeah. Who knew this would be a therapy session? Yeah, sometimes... <laughs> When you wake up in the morning, Ryan, put something on your checklist that you've already done. <laughs> the day is off to a great start. Yeah. How would you describe your sound, Cousin Curtis? <laughs> I would probably describe it as if blues and bluegrass had a baby. <laughs> yeah. Because if I were to tell somebody that I play blues, they'd be like, no, you don't. And then if I tell them I play bluegrass, they'd be like, mm, no, you don't. But together, I kind of do both. I was so charmed when I found out that you lived in Placerville, near Telluride. Yeah. Will you describe Placerville for us? <laughs> that gets a Western Slope laugh. Yeah, that was good. That was good. Yeah. All right. Yeah, yeah. Placerville is like my and many other people's happy place because we love tell you ride in the mountains but every once in a while it gets a little too crazy and you need some separation so you go to Placerville where you have a post office and you have a mercantile and all your friends are there <laughs> yeah so that's Placerville what have you bought lately at the mercantile oh wow that ranges anywhere from like guilty pleasures of a chocolate bar a bag of chips Powerade pop beer that kind of stuff <laughs> so you maintain a good diet that's clear yeah. okay <laughs> You were originally from Michigan. You've lived in Alaska. In fact, you were just in Alaska at a music festival dedicated to chickens. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's called Chicken Stock. You should look it up. Chicken Stock. Let it sink in. The stock, it's got layers. You also lived in St. Lucia in the Caribbean. I did, yeah. Yeah. What do you like about life on the Western Slope? And I wonder if it's a good spot for full-time musicians. I like most about the Western Slope the people. Um, the demographic that's here, we're all here for the same reason, right? You move to this area and you adapt to it or you already were adapted before you got here to the outdoor lifestyle, hiking, biking, camping, floating the river, uh, getting together with people on a regular basis. And I feel like my style of music fits that mentality, something that's fun, something that makes you want to get outside and be active and enthusiastic. Are you like River Jimmy Buffett? <laughs> I don't know. He, he's been sure. called River Jimmy Buffett. So, yeah, no. So people say, what kind of music do you play? Be like, River Jimmy Buffett. <laughs> I want to share something that we learned about you after you'd won our Solo on the Slope contest. We found a video you made in a van retrofitted as a studio. What's going on, everybody? I'm Cousin Curtis. This is the first recording coming from inside the van. I'm currently parked outside of Lizardhead Trailhead. It's absolutely beautiful here, just outside of Telluride, Colorado. And this song is called, It's About Time. Did you drive the van to be with us? I did. Oh, you did? Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's my car. It's Describe. Describe the van for us and how you've outfitted it. 
Uh, so the short story, I got the van back in Michigan. It was in empty shelves. It was just your regular old fleet vehicle. Um, it used to be um, a Culligan man water distributor vehicle. Oh. Anyhow, yeah, yeah. Um, and so I got it, and the dealership thought I was crazy, and I was like, just wait till you see what I do with this van. So now I cut in the windows, I insulated it. It's got hardwood floors, solar panels on the roof. Um, it's got a vent fan that's powered by the solar panels. Yeah, it's got a bed in the back, and driver's seat and passenger seat that swivel around now, and it's pretty posh. Did you do anything to soundproof it? Um, the insulation, that's about it, but it's, if you're going to record in it, when I do record in it, you got to pick a spot like Lizardhead Trailhead where no one is, and if they are, it's just their empty vehicles and they're off hiking, and you pick those nice quiet spots. Yeah. Otherwise, you'll get the honk honk of anybody driving by. It sounds nicer than some Airbnbs I've stayed in. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you used to teach English? Uh, but you've been a full-time performer for a few years now. Was it scary to take that leap? Yeah. Yes. Because the, the teacher life, you know, you got the salary, you got the benefits, you got your summers off, it's comfortable, it's very difficult to leave. And Incredibly when, uh, lucrative teaching, of course. Oh, yeah, it's just incredible. You know, there's a... <laughs> there's a lot of similarities between being a teacher and being a performer, because when you're a teacher, you're in front of essentially an audience, and most of them don't want you there. I know how you feel. And, uh, yeah. and as a performer, the first couple of years, not all the shows are like this. There's a lot of people in your audience that don't want you there. And so teaching was good molding for being a performer. <laughs> okay, how about a second song? I believe you're going to play what you submitted for our Solo on the Slope contest. Yes, sir. Okay, tell us about it before you perform. Uh, this song is called My Lover and Me. And I had the chorus of this song rattling around in my brain for close to a year. And that's pretty rare. Usually if I have an idea, I'm able to complete a song all at once. But I wanted this one to simmer and really develop it into a song, essentially, of traveling around full time and covering all corners of the continental U.S. and then even going overseas most recently um, to play music to continue chasing this dream. Meanwhile, my girlfriend of eight years now uh, is back home still chasing her dream and so it's tough. You, uh, you, have to, you have to find a way to maintain that relationship and keep it strong and, and this song tells a little bit about that. There's a call and response section to this song at the end and uh, you, you just have to say, hey, hey, and I'll, I'll give you a cue if you're feeling it. All right. Texas way Saw a lot of bad men Won't find a change I've been east On up the coast 
Curtis, thanks so much. Thank you. My pleasure. Cousin Curtis of Placerville, Colorado, population 670, is the winner of our Solo on the Slope music contest. And that's our special for today, recorded at the Avalon Theater on Main Street in Grand Junction. Special thanks to Matt Hers, Michael Hughes, and Stephanie Wolfe. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.